0: John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We that out of these stones of God can raise up children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors can be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do then? Don't collect any more than you are required to, they told him. Then, Some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of
1: the Lord. We believe it. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, even uh, the words that are sometimes not easy To digest, I pray that right now, Jesus, that you would in this season and even right now in this moment help create space uh, in our own hearts uh, to receive you. Um, Grant us faith, grant us repentance, open our hearts, open our eyes to see you, Jesus, as you really are, as the one who alone is worthy of adoration and worship and praise. And I ask all this in your name and authority. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple weeks ago, I received a call from one of our Crossing staff members, Brooke Smith. She was in my driveway with a flat tire, and she needed my help. Now, fortunately, by the time I got up there, she had also called Chris Collier, another one of our staff members, and it was good that she called him, because apparently he knows a lot more about changing flats than I do. I know it's probably a big surprise to a lot of you, but um, did you know, by the way, that there's a thing called a lug nut key? Anybody know what that is? Several of you know what that is? Of course you do. Um... I, I didn't know what a lug nut key, I don't know anything about a lug nut key, but I, you know, I got the little jack out, and what's the thing, um, it's not a, it looks like a crowbar, it's not a crowbar, but the thing you put on and you start, what's that called? Huh? I don't know what y'all said. Okay, I still don't know what you said. Um, anyways, point is, I go to try to remove the tire, remove the wheel, and Chris is like, hey man, you gotta first get the lug nut key. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And Brooks like, it's probably in my glove compartment. So I open up her glove compartment. I look through there. I'm like, there's no lug nut key in this glove compartment. So I begin to look through other places in her car, look in her truck. Hey, There's no lug nut key. Anywhere, and so I come up with the idea. Of, well, let's just try to air up this tire and drive it over to Mid South. It was actually late at night at this point. It's raining, but it's like let's drive it there. We'll drop it off, give Brooke a ride home, and then tomorrow they can you know change the tires and she can have it and all that good stuff. And so uh, I, I you know go get my air compressor, but I don't have the extension that I need for the air compressor that fits her tire. So Chris leaves, we go to his house and try to find the extension while he does. I get my bicycle pump and I just start trying to like pump the tire full of air, which by the way doesn't get you very far. Just so. You you know you live and you learn so um and so I'm trying to pump it up not getting anywhere he eventually comes back we air up the tire uh drive it over to mid-south and then the very next day I get from Brooke not a thank you so much for all that you've done to try to help but instead she says hey uh look what the mechanics found in my glove compartment let's go to this next picture where's it at uh does that look anything like a key to any of you Whatever, Steve. So it's like, uh, basically what she was saying is like, thanks for nothing, is what she was saying. Um, Here's the deal. Let me just say this, okay? Two things I I, want to take away from this story. Um, One, if you need mechanical help of any kind, I'm not your guy. Okay? Okay? You should know this by now. Don't call me. I'll pray for you. I'll counsel you. I'll do a lot of things for you. I will undoubtedly, when it comes to a mechanical issue, make a difficult situation a lot more difficult, okay? Uh, that's the first thing I want you to take away from that story. Secondly, I want you to know this. Uh, this highlights a reality that I think all of us are aware of, which is this. It is very possible at times to miss something that is hidden in plain sight. It is very possible. To need something that actually, if we could take it, would set us free and move us towards a desirable destination. But instead, because of the clutter and distractions around us, completely overlook it. And because God knows this is true, he raises up a really quirky man by the name of John the Baptist. And the sole purpose and mission of John the Baptist was to quote, we see this in, in Luke 3, chapter 4. It was to prepare the way... For the Lord. It was to make sure you did not miss Jesus. And you see, that's what Advent is all about. Advent is about preparing our hearts, preparing our mind, preparing our souls for the coming of Jesus, who came first as a baby, but is sure to return again as a king who will set all things to right. And because John knows how easy it is for us to miss this reality, because he knows that it's easy for the Messiah to get lost underneath the clutter of our own lives, he preaches what is I think, the least sentimental Christmas message of all time, which essentially is this. You brood of vipers, the axe has been laid at the root of the tree, now produce fruit in keeping with repentance. When I thought about that this morning, and I thought about scene two from Home Alone, where Kevin quotes Johnny when he's like, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals, right? And a Happy New Year. Like That's the tone of this message. But really, it's not really the tone of the message because beneath this, hard language is love. That's what this is all about. John is basically saying to the crowd and to us, don't just say you love God with your lips. Prove it with your life. He says to the crowd, some of you, you're trying to slither into the waters of baptism you think that's what makes you right before God. He says, others of you, you're putting your hope in the fact that you're Abraham's children. That's that's his way of saying you're putting your hope in, in the fact that you're a member of a church. You think because of association alone that you're going to heaven or because you had parents of faith, you're going to heaven. And to those people, John says basically one thing he wants you to do. Repent. He says, I want you to make room for this new Messiah and this new work that he wants to do in your life. And in order to do that, you need to repent. You need to clean the clutter out of your heart that is getting in the way of the salvation and the satisfaction that you actually long for. That's his message in a nutshell. And so the crowd asks this question in verse 10. What shall we do then? John, what does this actually look like? I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What shall we do then? And John's response is surprising to say the least. He says in verse 11, I'll tell you how you prepare for this new work that Jesus wants to do. Anyone who has two shirts should share with, should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors, right? they can not be baptized by the teacher, by John. And they ask, what should we do? And he says, well, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers came. like, we want to be baptized, right? What should we do in order to prepare our hearts for Jesus? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. I don't know about you, but that's not what I would expect John would say. Yeah, I would expect whenever you ask John, hey, what can I do to better prepare my heart for Jesus? I figured he would say, pray more. Attend the Sunday gathering regularly. Read your Bible daily. But instead, notice, instead of talking about prayer, he talks about possessions. Instead of basically just, basically what we see here is he, he ties repentance to riches. And in doing so, John does something, he reveals something that we often miss And it's the reality that oftentimes the key to the life that we are longing for is hidden beneath the abundance of things we just don't need. And this isn't just a message, by the way, that's communicated by John the Baptist. But it's also communicated many times by Jesus himself. For example, if you will look with me in Luke chapter 18. Flip with me just a few chapters to Luke 18. And if you don't want to turn there, I can just put it on the screen for you, but... Here's what we read, starting in verse 18. This is a certain ruler, and in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it says a rich young ruler came and asked Jesus. They say, He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so here's a man who is healthy and wealthy and prosperous, and yet notice he's still not satisfied. He still knows there's something missing in his life. He has made it to the top of the mountain that he thought that he needed to climb in order to be happy. And yet, even though he has all this wealth and all this stuff, it does not do for him what he thought it was going to do for him. So like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's discovered the reality that there is nothing under the sun that can fill the gap of eternity. And so he goes to this new renegade rabbi named Jesus and he asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you are Jesus, this seems like the question you have been waiting for someone to ask you. It seems like this man is just teeing it up for Jesus to preach the gospel to this man's heart. To say, do. You don't have to do anything. Eternal life comes by, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what I think Jesus should have said. But notice, instead of Jesus giving this man the gospel... He gives him the law. In verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mo- and your mother. And so this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just starts giving him a list of the Ten Commandments. But if you notice, he skips the first five commandments and he jumps to the back half. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, you know the first half is all about loving God. The back half is all about loving your neighbor. And that's the part that Jesus focuses on. Why? Because despite what your American individualistic version of Christianity might tell you, you cannot separate your love for God from your love for others. Over and over, the Bible tells us if you truly love God, you will love your neighbor. And Jesus, by the way, says, who is your neighbor? It's even your enemies. It's even those who aren't like you. It's the last and the least. And because Jesus knows that is just not where this man is. Because he knows on the outside he looks really good. That truly he's dead on the inside. He has a divided heart. Look what happens next in verse 21. The man responds, oh, I've kept all of those commandments since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, verse 22, he said to him, well, you still like one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you will have abundant life. Then you will have full life. Then, he says, come and follow me. And it says in verse 23, twenty three, when he heard this, he became very sad. Why did he become so sad? Because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle and for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I was talking to my kids about this just yesterday around the table. I was reading this passage to them and, and my wife, because she's a better teacher than me, she was like, oh, I think I have a, a needle that we can show our kids. And so I just want you to think about this for a second. Think about how big a camel is. And then you think I exaggerate. This is Jesus. He looks and he says, it is easier... To get a camel through the eye of this needle, than it is for a rich man, to, or, yeah, for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Which to me almost seems like he's saying it's impossible to be both rich and to enter into the kingdom of God. It's a really bold, almost crazy statement from Jesus. And whenever you have a statement like this, I would agree with with Pastor Tyler Staten, who says you should then ask the question, why, who, and what? Why is it so hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven? Who is actually rich? And what should we do in response to this word? And so I just want to answer these questions in the time that we have. And so first off, here's a question we'd be asking. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, in order to answer that question, let's just listen to what Jesus himself says. This is from the parable of the sower in Mark 4. Jesus says this in verse 18. There are some who, like seed uh, sown among the thorns, hear the word. So he's saying there's some people that hear the word of God. They hear preaching like this. They even maybe receive it. They agree with it. They like it, but in verse 19 notice, he says, But then the worries of life, and what's the next phrase? The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. I want to ask you this one, what comes to your mind when you think of this idea of choke? Some of you maybe think of an agrarian image like what jesus does here right like this plant and it's flourishing but all of a sudden this the weeds and the thorns come around it and choke the life out of it maybe some of you think of choking on food what i think of is mixed martial arts and so here's what i've asked my good friend trevor trevor can you come up here for a second um no i'm not gonna fight trevor so some of you would love to see like this is this is gonna be good y'all give trevor thanks trevor for coming up uh Trevor, friend of mine, always sits up here at front, makes me feel less lonely. Uh, black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, professional fighter, knows his stuff. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you, don't apply it, okay? But I want you, I'm going to get on this a really vulnerable situation, but I want you to put your arms around me. Do a rear naked choke, okay? Just for a second. Yeah, I thought I was going to be kind of leading this, but okay.
0: <laughs> so scoot-
1: Okay, I, I do not I this is not planned by the way. I have so, no yeah, idea what's happening. Here. Well, okay.
0: You got to you got to be really choked and feel helpless, right?
1: Okay. So yeah. you are going to go here. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. Why
0: that? Okay. See so
1: now we're not yeah, even choking, I can Okay. You can't be Yeah, this really hurts. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you Thank you Trevor. No, 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 that's enough. And that's just for service. Just Thank for you, Trevor. Service. That's all I need. Thank you. Uh Wow. You really committed to that. Um, if you're going to do it, do it right. Things that you probably never thought you would see happen uh, on a Sunday morning. Here's what I want. Look, as crazy as that is, that's the image I want you to have in mind. Because Jesus says when you get in the ring with wealth, that's the risk you run. It literally begins to entangle you. And to choke the life out of you. And the reason I wanted to bring him up there. And I want you to have this image. I know it will be more memorable. And the reason I want you to have that in your mind. Is because listen. I have seen this happen time and time again. Over the last 12 years as a pastor of this church. And it's heartbreaking. People who enter into the baptism waters. And they're passionate. And they're on fire for Jesus. And then what happens? They get a promotion. They start out and they're young. They've got no money, but they have a love for the Lord. And over time, success happens, money happens, and it begins to, over time, rob them of the life that they are longing to experience with Christ. I could point you to person after person after person that this has happened with. And the Bible, therefore, has a lot to say about this. For example, this is Proverbs 37 through 9. It's the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs, and here it is, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And listen to this prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much. Disown you and say, who is the Lord? Guys, there are two things. If you go read the Gospels, there are two things that Jesus fought against more than anything else. You want to know what it is? Number two was religious hypocrisy. And number one, by a long shot, was people's love for money. Think about that. More than Jesus fought against sexuality, political corruption, racism, or anything else, the number one thing that Jesus spoke against was the idea that what matters most is our abundance of material possessions. In Matthew 6... Verse 24, Jesus says the following No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But we sure want to try, don't we? Now to be clear, Jesus is not anti-money. I saw someone post the other day that says money is the root of all evil. That's wrong. The Bible says that love for money is is the root of all kinds of evil. The love for money, the teacher in Ecclesiastes 5 says, it fuels selfishness, it curses our satisfaction, it robs us of sleep and damages our relationships. This is why, in the words of the great theologian, Christopher George Wallace, a.k.a. the notorious B.I.G., mo' money, mo' problems. And because Jesus knows this is true, because he knows the more stuff we have, the more likely we are to get distracted and miss out on what is most important, he says it is very hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Which I think should cause all of us to ask the question, well, who's rich? I'll just share the facts with you. If your income is over 25000 a year, you're in the wealthiest, or you are the wealthier than 90% of the world. If you make over 50000 a year, you're in the wealthiest 1%. Ninety-one percent of the global population doesn't own a car. Nearly half of the world lacks basic sanitation. Two billion people, that's one in four people, don't have access to clean drinking water. 828 million go to bed hungry every night. 25,000 die daily because of hunger. That means 10,000 kids every single day are dying from starvation. Just under one billion people don't have electricity. Less than half the world owns a computer. Less than 7% have a college education. And one billion people... Live on less than $1 a day. This morning I woke up. I didn't, put my, I didn't turn our heat on last night. It was like 60-something outside. I woke up this morning and it was cold. It's like 62 in my house. And you know what I did? Without even thinking about it, I went and turned the heat on. And I got warm. In the summer when I get hot, I can get cool. I have lights that I can turn on. I have a truck that I drove here today. It yeah, that's a 2010 with 200,000 miles, but it's great. It still gets, gets me around. I have a smartphone, and I have a smart TV. I preach right now, in this very moment, from an iPad. I have a MacBook with earbuds that help me listen to music that I pay for. I have plenty of clothes in my closet and food in my pantry. I've never once worried about where I'm going to get my next meal or if I'm going to be able to get access to clean drinking water. Right now, if I wanted to, I could go to Shadrack's and buy a three-dollar coffee. Actually, I don't know are they open right now? Okay, Starbucks. All right, I could go to Starbucks right now and buy a three-dollar coffee, which is three times the amount that the majority of the world lives off of for a whole day. I have a master's degree, and I have a great network of friends that, if I ever got in trouble, they could bail me out. I say all that to say this: I am the rich young ruler, and so are most of you. And the only reason we don't feel like that is because we're comparing ourselves to other people who live in the wealthiest nation on the planet. Rather than comparing ourselves to the majority of people who could not even fathom have as much stuff as we have. And this is why I would say, man, that one of the hardest places to follow Jesus is America. Not because of our suffering, but because of our success. Not because of our pain, but because of our possessions that continue to crowd Jesus out of our hearts, our homes, and I would say even in our churches. Tyler Staten says it like this. The bride of Christ in our own time has a mistress named materialism. The church in the West begins sleeping with the American dream and we are their offspring, bearing a striking resemblance to both. We are experts in avoiding the way of Jesus when it gets confrontational to our lifestyle around consumerism. We evade the full call of Jesus and the process evade the life that is truly life. And that is what John and Jesus and the writers of the scripture are saying over and over and over. And you know why they have to say it over and over and over? Because greed is like a parasite. It is so hard to see in ourselves. But if left unchecked and unabated, it will destroy our lives. Tim Keller was once speaking to a group of pastors. Tim Keller, by the way, uh, he passed away earlier this year, but he pastored in New York City for over 40 years. And he's talking to a group of pastors, and he says, Guys, I have heard every kind of confession over the last 40 years. If you can dream it up, if you can imagine it, I've heard it. I've heard every kind of confession of every shape and size, but there's one confession I've never heard, not even once. He said, not one time has anybody ever came to me and said, Pastor, I think I struggle with greed. And that's in the wealthiest nation, or in the wealthiest city in our country, and therefore, our world. And you see, that's what's so dangerous about greed. This is why Jesus in Luke twelve fifteen says, Watch out! Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Why do you have to tell someone to watch out? Because yeah. you don't see it coming. Nobody thinks they're greedy. It's a a reality that's often hidden in plain sight. And here's the thing, as small as a sin may seem, as common or unacceptable, if you leave it there in your life, it will rob you of the joy that you are longing for. Which I think should cause us to therefore ask the question finally before we end is what shall we do? What shall we do? That's the question the crowd asked John the Baptist, and it's the question we should be asking as well. What shall we do? And a lot of the information that we have just received. And John's answer to the question is simple If you have two shirts, give away one. Do the same with your food. Don't take more money than you need, and be content with what you have. In other words, if you want to prepare for this work that Jesus wants to do in your own life, you need to remove the clutter from your own heart. You need to stop trying to hold on to so much stuff, and you need to instead practice a life of simplicity. And simplicity, simply put, is just a practice of living with less so that we can reorder our entire lives around what matters most. In other words, uh, Jesus said it like this. It is to seek first the kingdom of God. And it's a trust that if you will do this, everything that you need, he will ensure that you have. Jan Johnson, in her book on Abundant Simplicity, says it like this, Simplicity is not a discipline itself, but a way of being. It is letting go of things others consider normal. It is an inward reality of single heart focus upon God and God's kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness. We practice simplicity when we intentionally, we intentionally range our life around God, what He is doing in us and in this world, and we let the rest drop off. That's the invitation this morning. It's the invitation, church, of simplicity, or what church history has referred to as frugality. And I just learned this this past week, that, that the word for frugality comes from the Latin word frux, which is where we get our English word fruit. And so the idea is the frugal life leads to a fruitful life. And that brings us back to John the Baptist, to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John says you want to experience Jesus in a fresh, and profound way. You want to live lives that are marked by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Trim the fat off your life. Stop buying so much stuff that you do not need to impress people who honestly don't even care about you embrace instead a life of simplicity. Seek first Jesus and his kingdom and trust that when you do, that you will have all that you need to experience the good life. And so on a practical level, as we come in for Elena today, some of you are be asking, well, what does this mean for me and my family? And I don't want to tell you that. I want you to have a conversation with Jesus about that today. At the very least, this should raise more questions that you need to process with your spouse and with him. And I'll just give you a list of questions I'm currently processing. I've had to process them all this week, and I'm keen to think about them. Questions like this. When is enough enough? When have I made enough money? Like, where should my salary probably stop at? Because I have everything I need. When is enough enough, and who gets to determine that? Do I need to buy a different truck? It's just me, again, personally. Because I've been looking at different trucks. Do I really need to buy a different truck? My truck works fine. It's going to die eventually. and I'm going to have to buy another truck. But do I need to buy a different one? And if I do, how new does it need to be? How much house is too much house? How many pairs of shoes do I need? How many coats do I need? Do I need a coat for every kind of different season and occasion? John says, if you have two, you should give one away. How much... Money am I going to spend on my kids for Christmas this year? And what does my spending tend to tell my kids about what matters most in life? If you were to look at my bank account or my kids would look at my bank account, what could they say? This is what my dad is seeking first. Tim Keller says that money flows most effortlessly towards that which is its God. You know, I shared how this message has been largely shaped by by Tyler Staten. He's someone... Uh, that I admire, especially around this idea of simplicity and generosity. And I heard him say this week, he said that he and another pastor committed to a 18-month simplicity challenge, where for 18 months, think about this, for 18 months, they did not buy anything other than food and drink. 18 months. For 18 months, he said, I did not consume any sort of media, I didn't buy any clothing or anything else for myself. And he said, "I walked away after eighteen months of doing this, and there was two things I found out. One, I still had way more stuff, way much more than I needed. And two, this appetite that I had for like an updated phone or a new vehicle or for more of this or more things that had completely been reset and gone away, where I had truly become content with the things that I have. And so now, like for, he still will buy clothes, but he says like once a year I buy clothes. That's it. I don't allow myself to buy anything throughout the year, but one day out of the year, I know what it is I'm going to buy if I need new clothes." And, and there's a part of me that I hear that, and I'm like, that sounds awful. But if you're anything like me, isn't there another part of you that's like, but I'd like to be there. I would really like to be completely freed from the temptation of the love of money. To stop being controlled by this, this want for more stuff. To be able to come to a place where I can say, I truly am totally content with what I have. And therefore, I am regularly giving up things that I want to help those in need. And listen, I get it. Like, this is not easy. It is not easy. But as I thought about this teaching this week, I couldn't help but think about Jesus' words. Where he says that all of us in the room today are on one of two paths. We're on either a broad path or a narrow path. There's a broad path with a broad gate. He says, many are going to get on this. Because you don't have to give up anything to be on this path. You just take whatever you want for yourself. You don't don't sacrifice anything. It's a path many people are on, but in the end, he says, it leads to destruction. But then there's a narrow path with a narrow gate. And in order to get through this, you've got to give something up. It will cost you something. But Jesus says, that is a path that I am on. If you will stay on that path in the end, you will find life. And that's what Jesus has on offer for you today. So here's what we've got to do as we come to the end of a message. You have to figure out, everything I've shared with you today, I'm just the messenger. You have to figure out, does Jesus have a clue what he's talking about? And am I going to believe his teaching on this kind of stuff? Or am I going to find some way to be like, it can't mean what I think it means, so I'm going to kind of keep living the way I want to live that I think really I need in order to be happy? It's a hard message but this is how we prepare our hearts for Jesus. This is how we go from a place of singing, oh, come let us adore him, because that's what you do at Christmas, to truly adoring him in your heart, because you discover that he's actually better than anything or anyone else the world has to offer you. And so with that, I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and we're going to move into a time of communion, and I'm going to invite our communion servers to co- go ahead and come forward. And each week we take communion as a reminder that we need something outside of ourselves to satisfy us. And more than we need money, more than we need riches, more than anything else, we need Christ who came from heaven to earth to die in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with this God who alone can satisfy. And so the bread which will be torn off for you represents the perfect life of Jesus. He lived on your behalf. The juice represents his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian here, come and partake of communion. If you're not a Christian, rather than receiving this, receive Christ. We'll have a prayer team in the back corner over here. Guys, if you need prayer for anything, receive prayer during this time. We believe in the power of prayer. You can go and pray back here in the back, or you can pray. I'll be here in the front if you want me to pray over you for whatever it may be. As another act of worship, when we receive communion, we also return uh, worship back to God through giving. And you can give in one of four ways. I believe it can go on the screen for you, but you can give through uh, a text-to-give option through online I don't know what's happened, Buster. You're good, bro. I just now got choked out on the stage, so you're good. Don't worry about it. You can, you can give in person. Uh, you can give on the app. And again, guys, this is all the way for us to worship God. Giving is not just something that we do for God. It's also for us. It's about formation. It's about us being able to free our hearts from the love of money. And so... However you need to respond today, I pray that you will do that through its communion, through its prayer, giving, whatever it might be. Let's stand together. I'll pray. And then we'll be dismissed. Or we'll take communion, sing a song, then be dismissed. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you for now the opportunity that we have as an imperfect people who have all probably been tempted to worship our money, all been tempted to, to worship our possessions, to cling to those things. We have an opportunity now as an imperfect, sinful people to come before you and be reminded of the mercy and the love and the grace that you have poured out for us through your son, Jesus. And I pray that That it's from that place of grace, not guilt, but from a place of grace and love, that we would, in fact, become more and more of the men and women that you have created us to be. That we would be freed from our need and our our desire for just more stuff. That we would live simplistic lives. That we would make space for more of you, Jesus. And that we would extend your love to others. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.